What happens when a symbol of wealth becomes one of decay? In Canada alone, there are at least 475,000 conventional oil and gas sites that need to be cleaned up, at an estimated cost of 40 to 76 billion dollars. After over 100 years, it's time to clean up, and we've found ourselves unprepared. My name is Jillian McCurcher, and I'm from Alberta. I was born into a family of geologists, and I worked as an engineer for the world's largest independent upstream oil company, ConocoPhillips. As a daughter of oil and gas, I always find myself coming back to the energy industry. I'm fascinated by it, and I want to make amends for it. So where is the money and the labor going to come from? How can the public keep the oil industry accountable to clean up? What about orphaned wells? Wells that no longer have an owner because its company went bankrupt. Who will clean them? You're listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. Hey everybody, this is Quentin Hallahan from Alberta Advantage. Uh, here once again, I've been doing the newsletter for a little while now. You may have heard some of my interviews and I have been uh, allowed to record my voice once again by the beautiful people over on the audio side. And I am here because I want to talk about Orphan Wells. And specifically, I want to talk about Orphan Wells with Jillian McCurcher. Uh, she is the director of the hit, I'm going to call it a hit, a uh, new documentary, Orphaned. Uh, it's going to be playing, the, I, I think, a whole circuit of festivals soon, correct? We haven't applied to any festivals, but we are going to be on CBC Gem starting October 1st. Most people can just access it across Canada on CBC Gem. That you're hearing is Julian McCurcher, who's joining me uh, today from uh, Toronto. Yeah, so I've been spending the past couple years going between Toronto and Calgary, but I'm coming back to Calgary for a very extended time starting Christmas. Well, I'm going to uh, predict the future and say that if you apply to some festivals, you will get in because I've seen the, the documentary and it's very good. And that brings me to my first question, which is, uh, which haunted me the entire film is, are you the Orson Welles of Orphan Wells? <laughs> uh, I wonder what my rosebud would be then. Um, Probably a pump jack. <laughs> I can't get away from the subject matter. I, I don't know if I'm the Orson Welles of Orphan Wells or the oil industry, but I will say that um, of all my filmmaking friends and the people in the community, I care the most about the subject matter, it seems. I can't, I like literally can't get away from it. So uh, could you tell the audience a little bit about Orphaned, uh, uh, Orphan Wells, and what your documentary is about? For sure. So Orphan Wells are basically any oil and gas well site that doesn't have an owner to clean them up anymore. So that typically happens due to a bankruptcy. So I focused on Orphan Wells in the documentary, but it can be orphan infrastructure. So that means a pipeline or a facility also doesn't have an owner, and then, and then there's no one to do the cleanup cost or just take care of that liability. So the documentary that I made was investigating and exploring how do we get to a position where orphan wells are even a thing? Like how come companies aren't cleaning up their wells and why are these liabilities being left behind? What's happening right now to take care of these orphan wells? Because as you can imagine, landowners don't like having these um, pieces of infra infrastructure on their land and they can be quite dangerous. And what are we doing in the future to uh, address this problem? 
So you, uh, in the documentary, you interview uh, a, a number of, uh, uh, of experts and community members, but also a frequent, uh, a frequent speaker is your own father, which is a delight. Uh, he is a delight. And I was wondering, aside from, from his involvement in oil and gas, I believe he is a, a geotechnical engineer. He's a geologist. Geologist, yes. And uh, did you work in the oil and gas industry uh, at any point? Uh, I say this as somebody who had uh, a dad in oil and gas and has worked in oil and gas. Yeah. So both of my parents are geologists. I did all of my summer jobs at oil and gas companies. I went to the University of Calgary and graduated with a degree in chemical engineering. And during that time, I did a 16-month internship at ConocoPhillips doing production engineering and operations engineering. And uh, once I graduated from university, I got a job at ConocoPhillips and worked there for about three years as both a project engineer up in the oil sands and as a reserves engineer. So that as a reserves engineer, what I did is I helped account for all of the oil that was in the ground and all of our assets. So when you evaluate the, the actual, the value of a company, so like how many billions of dollars is this company worth? It, I would help translate the oil in the ground to an actual dollar amount. Did you have this? Uh, I'm curious because uh, I, I lived in Alberta for pretty much all my life. And then uh, you went to Toronto. I went to Vancouver for a little bit. Had you ever heard it referred to as tar sands before you moved out of Alberta? Because I had only ever heard oil sands until I left and people started talking about it uh, more in uh, in the negative. Yeah, I think I had heard it just from friends who had gone to university elsewhere, or especially when they would bring their significant others from other parts of the country back to Alberta for a visit. But I definitely heard way more negative um, comments and colloquialisms about the oil sands from the rest of Canada once I started traveling more seriously. So mostly in central Canada. When uh, when an oil company in Alberta goes uh, bankrupt, uh, typically these kind of fly-by-night smaller ones, but can happen to bigger ones too, uh, what happens to the infrastructure that they leave behind? What's in place right now to make sure that uh, that gets cleaned up? So if a company goes bankrupt, there is a period of time before, well, there's basically a period of time where they try to sell off as much as they can. So uh, they might have some really good assets, which other companies might want to buy. So there's a period of time where it's like, what is, what can be salvaged from this bankrupt company? But if there's anything which can't be bought or sold off, uh, often that infrastructure then becomes orphaned. And once something becomes orphaned, in Alberta, we have what's called the Orphan Well Association, which uh, takes care of the cleanup and the responsibility of these orphaned assets. Now, the Orphan Well Association is really interesting because there's actually not a program like that anywhere else in the world. Um, Orphan Well Association is funded through levies placed on the industry. So officially, it shouldn't be part of like a public burden, these orphan wells. But undeniably, the Orphan Well Association still has loans out from the federal government and from the provincial government in the hundreds of millions of dollar range. So we as the public are still on the hook, so to speak, for this orphaned infrastructure. And I realize I haven't said how many wells there are. So uh, the Orphan Well Association has just has over 2,500 orphan wells specifically. That doesn't include pipelines or facilities right now. They've cleaned up over 4,500 of these wells. And what I'm interested in too is that we don't want any more wells to become orphaned. We have 100,000 inactive wells across the province, which if they're not taken care of properly by the companies that own them, could eventually become orphaned. So we don't want 100,000 wells at an estimated cleanup cost. Well, the liability cleanup cost in the conventional sphere is like between 40 to $76 billion. Like we don't want that to be on the public. 
on our dime. So that's why I wanted to do the documentary. I think a lot of our audience will probably know a little bit about Orphan Wells. They'll know a little bit about the, you know, uh, very high level of liability coming coming down the pipe. Um, coming down the pipe, so to speak. Um, what what goes into cleaning up one of these orphan wells and why is it so expensive and why why is it kind of at the bottom of the priority list for some oil companies? Well, cleaning up a well site, it's site-specific. So the, you know, southern Alberta tended to have more shallow wells. Um, so cleanup wasn't as expensive as other parts of the province where a lot more, like maybe the well was deeper, there was sour gas, uh, more special equipment was needed on site. So cost of a cleanup can be between $30,000 to like $200,000. And it can balloon up to, you know, the millions of dollars, depending on what's needed for that specific site. So it's really difficult to know what the aggregate, like there there are costs that are aggregated, but um, it really, it really depends. So when a company is looking at their cash flow, they might say, well, I'll just put off the cleanup for a couple more years and continue to make money now because getting a hit of $200,000 per so ever many, so however many wells can cost a lot to you. So even what's interesting is there is a ratio that companies have where the, they have to prove that they have enough value in the company to take care of their liabilities. But of course, you can imagine that's directly tied to the price of oil. So if the price of oil crashes, your liabilities, the cost of cleanup doesn't change, but the but the actual amount of money you have to clean up does change. So that's, that's why I think companies don't want to clean up. It's just, it's like anyone, if you don't have to pay for it now, you might as well put it off. Like I think that hum- the human condition is to <laughs> put off things as much as we can if we don't think we have to or be forced to clean something up. So yeah, and and this is a little bit of what I used to work on in oil and gas as well. You get into it and it, there's a really great part of the documentary where you have somebody who works on the environment side. His name escapes me. My notes are horrible. Um, but he actually goes through one of the more complex and more expensive parts of environmental recl- reclamation of oil sites, which is like soil compaction, things that people wouldn't uh, typically think about, right? You clean up the oil, maybe you put it in storage, which is another, you know, uh, uh, you know, bag of cats when it comes to actually like storing impacted waste. Um, but then all that equipment and stuff, it uh, compacts the soil. And if the soil is too compact, you can't get it, you can't get things to grow evenly and you can't, thus you can't bring those things up to the native state and you can't get them uh, certified as as reclaimed, so it just sits there as a liability lump on your on your sheets. All these things are complex. All these things are expensive. If you were uh, the queen of the AER Alberta for a day, what do you have any idea of what kind of a system you would put in place to make sure that companies going bankrupt and companies that are thriving get these places cleaned up? Well, I know for one thing, the AER is trying to make. I know that they had spoken about changing the rules so that companies have to spend a certain amount of their profit on cleanup. But it's my opinion that that's not enough. I think that we do need to pay an upfront fee, mainly to take care of if the fluctuation and volatility in oil price, because we know for sure that the price of oil is going to go up and down, and it's probably just going to get more volatile in the future. So I think that if a company wants to explore and produce a well, then they need to put some money up front for the cleanup of it. And hopefully they don't go bankrupt and they're able to take that money that they put aside and just put it towards the cleanup like they're legally obligated to. But in the worst case scenario, we have that money available if they do go bankrupt. Um, 
if I was the queen of the AER, though, uh, I think it'd be interesting. It seems in the province, we often, um, we take the pressure off of companies whenever the price of oil is low. And we do a really, we're not the best at putting the pressure back on once the price of oil rebounds and does well. So I think that I would want to come up with a system that was much more um, sensitive to the price of oil. So it's like, okay, price of oil is here. That means immediately all these rules that we were, uh, we have relaxed are now in place rather than being like, oh, we forgot to put them back into place, which is kind of uh, the system that we have right now in Alberta that's very reactive. And then we forget to put the pressure back on until there's public scrutiny. There's a, a lot of headlines that come out of, say, uh, uh, forest protectors in Ferry Creek, water defenders in Standing Rock. Was there a sense of um, was there a sense of conflict in Frog Lake where it's just like to grow our community, we need to take advantage of this bounty, but at the same time, we feel a need to defend uh, the, 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 our traditional land? Was, was that a sense you got from residents there? Uh, it was complicated, I think. I think that everybody, ha- like, everybody has a relative or a friend or themselves have worked in the industry and can't deny the stability and the wealth and the that it provides. But I think at the same time, there is this conflict about, uh, yeah, like damage to the land, um, a desire to move away and do something different. So whether that's transitioning into new forms of energy and electricity, um, and also like whether the oil and gas production comes at the cost of traditional ways of living, but overall everyone was pretty, like no one was blaming each other. It was, it was a really interesting and way to talk to people. It, yeah, it was it was interesting. Everyone was. I feel like I'm not giving a very good answer right now. It was it was interesting to talk to people off the cuff. Where you like in the documentary, we talked to two young women, Cassidia and Kira, who talk a lot about feeling like there might not be hope for the future and that time is running out. And at the same time, they're saying, "But we can't blame anyone for the past. Like my heart is like broken for what we've done in the past, but hopefully we can all come together and change it." So, I think that. Frog Lake First Nation actually was quite hopeful for positive change. So right now people are really empowered by the cleanup that's happening on the First Nation um, and trying to look to new ways of creating, uh, generating profit on the nation because, yeah, it's not really coming from oil and gas anymore. Mm -hmm. This is a bit of a bit of an aside, but like uh, you and I both have, uh, you know, backgrounds and, and in particular fathers that have worked in oil and gas. Do you ever feel the way I do, which is sometimes, especially when you talk about kind of the intractability of, of climate change, do you ever feel it's just like, yes, the carbon economy is, you know, a significant uh, hardship for the planet, but also is the reason why I'm here and thriving in any way that I am. Do you ever feel, do you ever feel that way? I feel guilty about that all the time. Oh yeah. I feel, uh, I believe in the first little bit of the documentary, you said, uh, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you said that this was part of making amends. Yeah. I feel, I feel so, I feel very complicit in what's going on, not just, not just as a consumer of fossil fuel energy, but also as for a long time, you know, a participant in the workforce that produces it. I do want to make amends for it because I think I do have uh, a unique position having worked in it and being part of the culture. But yeah, it's, I I feel conflicted about it all the time. Um, You know, when I, when I was making this documentary, I was so optimistic and feeling really good about the changes that could happen in the future. And yes, you know, I think oil and gas is going to be part of everybody's lives for the, for a long time, but I was feeling so good that 
we can move away and the cleanup is part of the transition. And then I was reading about how OPEC, now mind you, OPEC is trying to look out for their best interests and they're an oil cartel, but they were talking about how oil and gas is going to be a significant part of the future for decades to come. And the share of oil and gas in terms of energy was going to be still the most out of any of them. So something like 27% by like 2050. If I have that stat wrong, I'm sorry. I'm just pulling it from my head. One of the one of the great centerpieces uh, of, of your film is actually getting to see um, some uh, reclamation, some uh, some cleanup operations, uh, which is so great. I think I think Albertans are very disconnected uh, from the actual work, like outside of the you know, the industry workforce. Then you have like the majority of Albertans who may never step foot on a lease. Um, and uh, you get to see just how how manual <laughs> it is. Uh, literally, people scraping sand and and sludge uh, out of it. Um, and in what always strikes me the most, uh, in, in one scene in your your documentary, you have guys that are uh, cleaning up a tank site, and they're just leaning against this kind of fraying insulation around the tank, which I couldn't couldn't confirm it visually uh, in. Uh, in the film, but those are frequently insulated with asbestos because um, it's such a good, such a good insulator against fire. That's the problem with asbestos is what it does. It does very well. Um, it just happens to kill people. Um, what was it like working with those guys? And and uh, did they seem to? They they all seem to take real real pride in what they were doing. Um, what was that experience like? Actually, uh, being on a cleanup of an orphan. I feel so, so lucky that um, in my history, my work history, I've been able to work in the field. So I feel really at home when I'm on site. So uh, we talked to Danny Thompson. He was the supervisor at that site for the tank cleanup. He was like so knowledgeable and really open to us being there. And like he says in the documentary, you take he, he takes pride in what he does. He wants to do a good job. And for me, it was important to speak to people who actually physically do the work because yeah, it can feel very disconnected. Like when we say the oil sands or the the oil industry needs to clean up, it's like, yeah, that's going to be done through manual labor, 12 hour days. Like we had to cut it from the documentary, but I think that that was Danny's like 21, 22nd day in a row of working and he was going to work for another week. So that's like 30 days in a row of 12 hour days doing like heavy lifting, being out in the elements. It's really, really, really hard work. And And like, and and that that so embodies like the Calgary oil and gas ethos of just like why would you hire another crew when this crew you can convince to to work these twenty two hour days the, mm-hmm. the 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 amount of unemployment um, when that amount of work uh, is out there to do see just boggles the mind when you see what they're doing yeah it's it's just so physical and I really respect what they're doing. And I'm so thankful that they're doing this because it does burn people out. You know, safety is a big issue They're in, I think Danny, he was originally from cold Lake, but if you are flying in or flying out to do this work, you can be quite disconnected from your family. So, um, cleaning up is not just in like, just because we have the money, it's not going to solve it. We still need a huge labor force to do this. And so, I want to honor that and respect the work that has to be done. And I think what, what's ironic too, is that a lot of the people who are currently working as operators or work on more of the production side of oil and gas, they're going to be the ones to be working on the cleanup side. So I think that there is a, again, when I say cleanup can be part of the energy transition, a lot of these jobs, which right now are more on the production side can then be transitioned into the cleanup side of things. Because, um, you know, if you think about it, it took 75 years to 
drill all of these wells, it's going to take a long time to clean them up too. Part of the uh, documentary does look at the regulatory attitude of the province of Alberta and specifically speaks to an auditor general's report uh, about the the attitudes and management style at uh, the AER with some fairly uh, choice adjectives for the work environment. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? I first heard about this Auditor General report. So this came out in 2019. So things have changed a little bit. But um, I first heard about it through just like talking with some friends. And I actually thought that they were making this up. And then I went and looked and no, like the Auditor General report is public. There has been lots of news coverage on it. And the the language is that there was a culture of fear at the AER and there wasn't enough corporate governance and there was a gross mismanagement. I'm not like, that's a quote, gross mismanagement of public funds. So when you see all of those things come from like a corporate, from like a regulatory watchdog, that like, it just gives me shivers because you're like, okay, so we as Albertans in the public have been suspecting this for quite some time, being told that no, everything's fine. Don't worry. And then when you see an auditor general report come out that confirms your worst uh, your worst fears. It just, it feels a bit like a betrayal because the regulator is supposed to be in the public interest. Like, yes, they're supposed to, you know, ensure that an industry can do what it wants, but not at the expense of like what the public um, needs. So yeah, it was, um, it was pretty crazy to see that because I, we, I know a lot of people who have bad opinions of the regulator and hopefully they're changing it. I feel like they're overworked and underpaid. I mean, not, not underpaid, understaffed, excuse me, <laughs> overworked and understaffed, but you know, they didn't talk to us in the, in, for this documentary. And I think that that just perpetuates again, this feeling of like, we're impenetrable. We don't want to talk to the public. Even if they just came out with a canned response with us and we're like super PRE about it, I think that would have been, that would have shown more good faith than not speaking with us. Uh, well, help is on the way. The current president uh, used to be the minister for energy, I believe, in the conservative Saskatchewan party uh, uh, government. And uh, there's at least one vice president of the AER who was Jason Kenney's campaign manager. So uh, I think we're going to see some real uh, positive uh, change there. Another great part of, the, of your documentary, which I think is something that um, completely flies under the radar uh, when, it ta- when we talk about orphan wells uh, in Alberta is um, the these sites can be cleaned and they can be cleaned to a reclamation certification, which is you know the current standard that we have to say that this is a cleaned up site. But those sites for usually uh, a lot of the times former arable land that may or may not have leached into more uh, more area um, might not be safe. Uh, at, at that level for the creation of food. So you start to go into using that infrastructure that had to be in place to create a well site in the first place um, to uh, uh, create like small leases for um, solar power, um, which is, you know, I, I, which was great, a, a completely absent idea of, of turning these things uh, into something useful. What was, uh, how did you go about even finding people who are doing that. And uh, what was what was that experience like talking to people who were using these former leases for uh, for good? Well, interestingly enough, this is the world is such a small place. I was connected to this woman named Julie Roll. We didn't end up getting to use she didn't end up making the cut for the documentary, which is a shame because she's really interesting and very intelligent. But and incidentally, she was there. I think she she shared with me that she was actually in the room when I got laid off. She wasn't doing the laying off. She was like just there as a support person, which is like so crazy to have this intimate experience with somebody. And then you kind of get reconnected yeah. years witness, later. The, the, the witness, she was so my witness. Sued, 
If, oh, no, if, the, if the company gets sued by you, then they can say, no, nothing actually happened. <laughs> no, for sure. Or like if I go like totally psycho, she's just meant to be there. So I don't do anything weird. <laughs> was, yeah. Anyways. Um, so I was connected to the work that Julie's doing at the Energy Futures Lab, which is specifically looking at new opportunities for um, orphaned or inactive well sites, because it was her opinion, like, this stuff has already, we have all of this land here. Is there any way that we can reuse it? So rather than, you know, disturbing new land, is there anything we can do? So that's what her, 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 her work at the Energy Futures Lab was trying to do. So through her, I was connected to uh, more more entrepreneurs who are actually doing this uh, work in the space, um, trying to think of what could be done. So I spoke to people who do, who are looking at geothermal wells or hydrogen, but um, the best fit for our documentary was talking to the folks who made it into the doc. So that was Keith Hirschi, who has what's called the Renewal Project. So they're looking at doing solar, which is very viable in Southern Alberta, and they do have lots of land, which could be used for solar small-scale solar plants. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting because there is a problem where, yeah, even though a site becomes reclamation certified, it might not pass other things. So yeah, like maybe it can't grow food or maybe it's fine today, but in 20 years, it's not okay. So what do you do with this land? I was just really inspired that people are, are actually working in this space and thinking about it. And it's usually coming from a localized community. So most of these people who are thinking about this come from a community where they're seeing the impacts head on and see an opportunity there for their um, for their locale rather than just saying like, yes, I believe in solar panels and I'm just going to take like hundreds of acres to do it. These people are actually thinking like, how can this integrate into my community? So that was what I was really interested in. And I, I want to celebrate people like that because... I think that what is disturbing that I learned is that there is no single green energy regulator or like regulator or any sort of body in Alberta who oversees like the green energy transition within the province. So like to do a project like solar energy on a well site, you're talking to like four different regulator regulatory mm-hmm. bodies and it's super fractured. And, and if so you're what I grants or any kind of tax incentives for that, you're talking to another half dozen. Dude, it's so bad. Like, I was like kind of embarrassed to me that doesn't show visionary leadership within the province. But what I'm concerned about is that a big company like Amazon is going to come in and then take advantage of this lack of cohesive um, rules and just like do a bunch of stuff at the expense of us as the public. And then this localized uh, knowledge is going to just be like totally forgotten about. And I would rather have the rules in place from these localized experts guiding what Amazon can and can't do rather than us just like inheriting whatever these large corporations are going to say. Yeah. And you're, you're, yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right that if somebody comes with a bucket of cash and their own ends in mind, uh, you know, whoever is in Alberta looking at this problem and the giant number that's attached to it is absolutely going to, going to jump at it. Here's my idea. I'm going to pitch you my idea. Okay. Okay. So I came up with this when I was, uh, when I was working for a pipeline company and wanted to see like, how can we get uh, more attention to these orphan wells and cleaning them up? And the idea I had was we need two things. One, we need to get a printed uh, flag for the terrorist organization ISIS. And second, we need to uh, trap and catch a live sage grouse. So that way uh, we can take a picture of these well sites with a sage grouse and the flag of ISIS, and we can get both national security and uh, endangered animal money going towards cleaning up these things. Does this have a future in Alberta? I think that you would get a lot of money t- towards yeah. – like. 
Would the means meet the ends? Yes. <laughs> yeah. The word sage grouse in my department was like saying Voldemort. Uh, oh. In, in, in it is just like, oh, if everything comes to a halt, if you even see a sage grouse egg, like the shell of an egg of like a sage grouse that is 10 years gone, everything comes to a halt until you can go out there and do a, a insane investigation for sa- sage grouse. So you, at this point, having made a documentary about Orphan Wells in Alberta. You're probably getting dangerously close to the Gladwellian 10,000 hours of experience with, say, with uh, um, sagegrass, with uh, Orphan <laughs> Wells. Um, how are you hopeful for the future of, of environmental cleanup in Alberta and uh, the direction that we're going? I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that with enough public scrutiny that all of these wells can be cleaned up. I mean, we know where they all are. We drilled them all at one point. It's going to be more difficult to clean it up because there's less financial incentive. But I think that we have a moral responsibility and also like it feels good to clean up this stuff as Albertans and wanting to be connected to nature and the land. It feels very, very good to put things back to its natural state. So I feel that with the proper um, regulations in place and policy and with, again, enough scrutiny from us as the public that it can get done. But I'm I'm worried that we are not going to learn from orphan wells, especially when it comes to larger scale cleanup, like the oil sands. I was just reading about um, another auditor report that was talking about how uh, we don't like, it's not really clear how we're, we're putting aside money for larger scale cleanup in the oil sands. And no one, there's a lot of cleanup that's still like, it's a hot potato where everyone's like, well, it's not my responsibility. It's not your responsibility. And so then it just never happens. And so I think that we can learn a lot from orphan wells and try to apply that to cleanup, which we definitely know is going to be happening in the next 50 years. So that is something which I'm I'm going to be keeping my eye on. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jillian, for talking to me. Uh, the documentary is Orphans uh, from Kino Sun Productions on CBC Gem. And this has been your very detail-oriented host. I am Clinton. Uh, this is the Alberta Advantage Podcast. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary. Thank you.